Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 6, 25 through 33. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, and about your body, what you will wear. Is it not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can, a, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was younger, I can't really remember how old, and I don't remember this story perfectly, but I was riding in the car with my dad, and I can't remember what prompted this story, but we were, we were riding together, heading home from somewhere, and I turned to my dad in the car, and I asked, Dad, are we rich? And, and I have to hand it to him, because if it were me receiving this question uh, at such a time, uh, I think if I were in his shoes, I would have just busted out laughing, because we were not. <laughs> but instead, uh, my dad said, well, it depends on what you mean by rich. I think that we're rich in love. I can't remember the rest of that conversation or where it went. I can remember that at times whenever I was in uh, high school in my teenage years that I thought that was probably the most cheesy thing that I could ever hear from my dad. But as I've gotten older, as I've started to reflect on that little conversation, the small exchange that I remember, I'm astonished at how profound his response was. And in fact, I was even telling my wife Kristen about this story uh, a couple of days ago in preparation for the sermon, and, uh, and she said, your dad is very wise. I said, he is very wise. And I don't think I appreciated that nearly enough as a child. So, Dad, if you're watching or listening, thank you for your wisdom that you continue to bestow on me because that, that wasn't really what I was looking for in an answer. In fact, you know, I, I probably would have really enjoyed hearing an answer, yeah, we're super rich. We've got all this stuff. But his answers continued to impact me for every year of my life, really, as I start to unpack what it means to be wealthy, what it means to have and to have not. Because we're in a time where it really just feels like there is not much. During this month, we're going to be talking about the word abundance. And it's a word we haven't been using very often these past couple of years. 
because it doesn't feel like there's a great abundance of things. There's labor shortages and shortages of people who want to work. There's shortages of chips, which apparently are in everything. So we can't, we don't have enough cars in the market and we don't have all of these products and these products and everything seems to be stuck on container ships, probably in that uh, Suez Canal for some reason again. And, uh, and, and there just seems to be a shortage everywhere we turn. And there's not enough money to the point that the government had to send out a lot of payments to people just to keep people going. And then the government was like, wait, we don't have enough money either. And so they had to figure out how to make sure they didn't default on their debts. And, and you know, that'll come back up again in December. And it just feels like there's not enough. Not enough time. Not enough money. Not enough resources. Not enough hope. Not enough joy. Not enough love. And what happens to our minds when we feel like we have too little? What happens to our minds when we feel like we are in a time of scarcity? Well, interestingly enough, a few years ago, that's the very question that Sintil Mulnathan and, and Eldar Safir sought to answer in their book. And these are two economists, uh, from, one from Harvard, one from Princeton. And they, they came together uh, kind of reluctantly to write a book called Scarcity, The New Science of Having Less and How It Defines Our Lives. It's a fascinating book. Uh, like I said, it came out a few years ago, I think. 2015 sounds about right. It's not so. It's not that old. It's still a developing science, and, and in it, uh, they talk about how they were talking with uh, with one of their friends about the science of scarcity, and their friend said, "There's already a science for scarcity. We call it economics." And they said, "Yes, that's true, but there's more than just the physical, the fiscal aspects of scarcity. There is a mindset." And so they started unpacking what happens to our minds when we feel like we have too little. And of course, the answer is far too complicated for us to unpack in two, sent in two sentences. So I'm just going to encourage you to, to check out that book. It's on Amazon for like $10, so it's not a very expensive book, but it's, it's well worth the read. But it comes down to this simple notion. Scarcity changes our perspectives and the way that we interact with the world. It just, that's, that's the truth of it. When we feel like we have too little, the way that we look at the world and our context and the things that uh, we want to do and the things that we have to do, we look at it all differently. And they go on to say that the context of scarcity makes us, and, and I'm, I'm going to use their word, myopic. And the word myopic means that we have a bias towards the here and now. In other words, what, what they're saying is the context of scarcity focuses us on just now. They say we end up overvaluing the benefits, the immediate benefits, at the expense of the future benefits. You might have seen there was a, there was a social science, science experiment that was done a number of years ago in which the, uh, these uh, scientists sat down uh, kids at a table and they handed them a marshmallow, a single marshmallow. And they said, you can eat this marshmallow now if you want, but 
if you can wait for X number of minutes, I can't remember how long it was, not very long, but if you can wait so long, then I'll come back and give you two marshmallows. And then they leave and the camera's rolling on all of these kids and all of them are kind of looking at the marshmallow and some of them start poking the marshmallow and some of them are sniffing it. One of them kind of gives a little lick. But before the end of the time is up, all of them take the marshmallow and eat the marshmallow at the expense of having two marshmallows. Could have had two, but they're like, nah, one's good for right now. Uh, our, our authors of scarcity, they, they say we kind of get into that same mindset, this regression mindset of thinking like we're young kids. When we feel like we don't have enough, we have this one-track mind of only focusing on right now at the expense of the future. In other words, what we end up doing is we enter survival mode instead of preparing to flourish. And I want you to hold on to those words because that's important. With a mindset of scarcity, we enter survival mode instead of preparing to flourish. And as we unpack that, what I want us to understand, and we're going to be talking about this for four weeks, so this concept is going to be huge, and that is that the kingdom of God, and we're going to see this each week, and if you don't believe me, then go and look at every single time Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is an investment. The kingdom of God is an investment. We uh, in the United Methodist Church, our theology of the kingdom of God is a paradox. The kingdom of God is both not yet, in other words, it is some future happening, and, and it is here and now. The kingdom of God is both not yet and it is here and now. And we have to write far too much about that in our ordination paperwork. So if you ever want to know more about that, I'm happy to talk about it. But what that means is, uh, consider for a moment Luke chapter 17, 20 and 21. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here. And Jesus says to the people, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, there it is, or here it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Consider that. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God among us? How does that work? What does that mean? Perhaps we might need to ask, what even is the kingdom of God? Because this is an expression that Jesus throws around far too often. And, well, we live in a, uh, in a democratic society, and kingdoms don't really exist outside of our medieval understandings of them. So what is the kingdom of God? Some scholars have shifted that name to be the kingdom of God. Some have called it other things as well to try to match our understanding of it. But we have these words from Jesus, the kingdom of God, and we need to understand what exactly is that. And in order to understand that concept, let's just think about whatever image you have of a kingdom. And I want you to ask, what makes a kingdom a kingdom? 
So let's think about that. Is it the land? The expanse? Is it a castle or a palace? Is it the money? All of those are a part of a kingdom, but they're not what makes a kingdom a kingdom. Can anybody guess the one thing that makes a kingdom a kingdom? A king, yes, and the people, yes. And I lump the king into the people. It's the people. The people make a kingdom. Without that, the king has no one to rule over. They just have a whole lot of land and far too much land. They're not going to be able to do anything with that land. Uh, it's the people that make a kingdom. And so when we're talking about the kingdom of God, and Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you, what's among them right now in this moment? What's among them as they're standing there in Jerusalem? People! People are all among them. They're all around them. Jesus is talking about the people. And so whenever we're talking about the kingdom of God as both here and now and also not yet, we're talking in people terms. We're talking in relational terms. And when we're talking about the kingdom of God being an investment, we're talking about investing in people. The people are among us. The people are what God cares about. And the people are what God calls us to invest in. Jesus, in verse 33 of our passage today in Matthew chapter 6, says, Strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. That word strive, or some translations translated as seek, seek first the kingdom. That word there in Greek is zetio. Zetio is a, is, I mean, it's Greek, so it's packed full of all kinds of complicated implications. But ultimately, what that word means is to work toward something. So strive, to work toward something. Or a more modern interpretation of this is to invest for. Jesus says, invest for the kingdom of God. Invest in the kingdom of God. And all of these things will be added to you as well. In other words, Jesus is telling us to stop putting so much investment into temporary things, into short-sighted things, and to invest in something enduring. Jesus wants us to stop worrying about all of these uh, other things that are in our life because there is no benefit to our worry. Jesus asked the question in the middle of our passage today, kind of ironically, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your lifespan? I love that. I love, I, I mean, it's, it's just so profound. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your lifespan? You know what's so ironic about this that, uh, that Jesus probably knew, but the people didn't quite understand yet? Worry and stress and anxiety can take as much as three years off of our life. And in some more extreme cases can even take up to 10 years off of the average lifespan. So the irony of Jesus' question, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? The answer is no. 
because our worry ends up taking away from our life. And not only taking away literal years from our life, but taking away the quality of our life. Because when we spend all this time worrying, we're not actually doing anything with our life. And this is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand here. Whenever he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and drink? Is not the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Are you? Well, yes. And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your lifespan? No. And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for things like this, the Gentiles, those who do not believe. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But... Strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. What is the benefit of worry? Jesus says there is none. Being in the mental health field, I work with people through this concept often. Worry, anxiety, stress. It's so prevalent Today, In fact, we're in such a mental health crisis that's so unprecedented that uh, mental health care workers like, literally don't have breaks in their schedule anymore. It's just constant trying to help people work through the vast amount of anxiety that has shown up during this time. And, and it's not just the adults who are freaking out, it's the kids too. The kids in school, they're, they're testing higher on uh, depression and anxiety scales than ever before during this time because we're in such a crazy time. It's a time of great amount of worry and anxiety and concern and scarcity. And you know what causes this kind of worry and anxiety and stress? It's that scarcity mentality. It's that there's not enough time, there's not enough money, there's not enough skill to accomplish this task. There's not enough hope for the future. What is even coming next? There's not enough joy. We only have complaints. Even to the point in which we begin thinking, I am not enough. But our call as Christians is to overcome a scarcity mentality with a mentality of abundance. And that's the direction we're going to be going for the next couple of weeks I want to remind you of a story that is uh, colloquially known as the widow's mite. It's a story in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 21 in which Jesus and his disciples are watching the people come up to the temple, to the temple treasury, and give their tithes and offerings. And they note all of these very wealthy people who are coming up there with great flair and depositing. And then they see a widow who comes up with a meager two copper coins 
pennies and puts them in. And Jesus tells his disciples, I tell you that she has given more today than any of these others because they have been giving out of their abundance. He uses that word abundance. They have been giving out of their abundance while she gave out of her living all that she has. There is no investing like investing in the kingdom of God. And interestingly, we in the church only uh, talk about a tithe, which is a tenth, a tenth of what we have out of our abundance, a tenth. Yet the widow and her two copper coins kind of give us this other perspective of giving our all, investing our all into something greater than ourselves. The widow's investment shows us that she believes her abundance is to be with God. That her abundance is with God, not with anything that she can possess. And so she gives all to God. How much do we have to learn from these two copper coins? She gives her all to God. And while we might think of investing as the stock market or bonds or uh, 401k or IRA or something like that, Jesus is calling us to invest in something far greater with a far greater ROI, return on investment. Because abundance is found in the kingdom of God. And the return on investment is much greater than we can be prepared for. But it demands our investment. And so that's my challenge for us this week. And really through this stewardship campaign. Is to take on a mindset of abundance over scarcity. And while that's so much easier said than done, I recognize that. It is so much easier to talk about thinking of abundance rather than scarcity. So, because of that, I want to give us a different direction. Let us start seeking our abundance in God rather than thinking of ourselves possessing an abundance. Because you know what happens when you start accumulating wealth? It's still not enough. And you get more, and it's still not enough, and it would always be nicer to have a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, and you never really feel like you've reached that abundance point. But when we seek our abundance in God, in the kingdom of God, everything starts to shift for us. When I asked my dad if we were rich, I was absolutely asking about our financial situation. But fortunately, my dad, in his infinite wisdom, showed me that riches worth having go far beyond our finances. Riches worth having go far beyond our finances. He taught me that investing in love is far more valuable because it overcomes a scarcity mindset. It would have been so easy for my dad to just say, no, we're not rich. But that's a scarcity mindset. Instead, he chose to take an abundance mindset and he said, we are rich in love. When we live out of an abundance, we are more likely to invest and to give. And the best investment and the best giving is that which resides in love, in people. And so let us, 
in this stewardship campaign, give. Not out of our abundance, but out of our all into God's abundance. Let us invest in the people of God who constitute God's kingdom. Let us strive first for the kingdom of God and find there abundant hope, abundant joy, abundant love, and riches unknown to us there. And let us pray. 